Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. Why, we are even home to Imus in the Morning. We also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the Internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck... Call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, a.m. 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Surround yourself with the best people you can find. Delicate responsibility and don't interfere. This is a famous quote by President Ronald Reagan. Welcome, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, we're streamed worldwide on the Internet, so run your computers and go to our Google, TanTalk1340.com, and you can watch us here in the studio. And uh, don't forget to check out our, uh, see what else we got. Oh, yeah, we got a, uh, what they call it? Oh, yeah, Facebook. Yeah, check out our Facebook pages. And uh, if you want to send us an email on tonight's show, go ahead and email us at golfstreamradio at gmail.com. Well, anyway, hey, we got a good show for you tonight. We have some different, little different music tonight. And uh, as you know, I usually select my music uh, kind of pertaining to uh, the guests that I have on my show. I have a very, very special, interesting guest. I met this gentleman for the first time, I guess, in 1981. And then I bumped into him a few times at a couple of uh, subsequent races, most notably uh, the 24-hour of Daytona. As a matter of fact, our guest we had on last week was Hurley Haywood, who uh, is also friends with this gentleman, our special guest tonight. And uh, he uh, also, we were talking about the uh, 24-hour race last week. So at any rate, um, how are you doing tonight, Lee? I'm doing fine, Robert. Thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, hey, what do we got uh, on our music box tonight? Well, we've got Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman. All right. Hey, let's roll that, and then I'll get into some more announcements, and uh, we'll bring our guests on here in a little bit and uh, talk about some of the upcoming and past events. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Sounds good to you. All right. Let's roll.
Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about Naughty Nancy. No, this isn't a story about a bad girl. This is a truth about a great place to eat and hang out. Naughty Nancy's Food Shack, located at 700 Eldridge Street in the downtown Clearwater area, is a quaint little place nestled under some huge oak trees serving great food and drink and a wonderful, friendly atmosphere. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. They have 10 daily specials as well as many different styles of cooking from Cajun, New England, Country, Gourmet, and even Short Order, prepared just the way you want it. So check out this groovy little dew drop in right on the trail. So jog up to our front door, ride up on your bicycle, drive up in your car, or pull up on your motorcycle. And visit my friend Nancy and place your order. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. Hey, mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you might get a free drink. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater. Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, manicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olti create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Uh... Anyway, hey, uh, let me tell you about a couple of the upcoming events here real quick. Um, This weekend at Palm Beach International Raceway, the 10th through the 12th, I guess that starts tomorrow, is the uh, vintage HSR uh, racing event. Okay, so all you guys want to see some really cool vintage race cars, run on down to uh, Palm Beach International Raceway, and you can see some really, really, really cool vintage racing going on. I mean, there's some really, really stunning cars down there. And as usual, you know, you'll have Porsches, Shelbys, Jags, Ferraris, just all kinds of cool stuff. So if you can think about it, you know, vintage muscle cars, Trans Am cars, and in some cases you'll also have some vintage uh, NASCARs there. Also, don't forget, this weekend we also have at Sebring International Raceway, we have the SCCA races going on, and they too will include a vintage race uh, for some vintage cars. And so, you, again, you'll have Mustangs, you'll have Porsches, you'll have Camaros, you'll have Ferraris, Volvos, Datsuns, just all kinds of cool cars. So that's a good fun event. So if you can't make it to West Palm Beach, uh, just about an hour shy of that, you know, heading in the same direction there off 66 is Sebring International Raceway. Also, let's see what else we got going on. Oh, yeah, don't forget on the 18th of this month, we've got the Winter Extravaganza at Sumter County Fairgrounds. Okay, that's the 18th through the thun- 20th. And uh, for all you uh, parts and uh, car junkies like me, that's where you want to be. The 24th of this month, we have Zephyr Hills. Again, uh, another place for us car junkies and parts junkies to hang out. Some cool stuff going on, some vintage sprint car racing, and all kinds of cool stuff. And, of course, for all you NASCAR guys, on the 20th is the big day. It's the Daytona 500 race. And I've got a real surprise guest for you guys next week, and we're going to be talking about the Daytona 500. Also, don't forget, it's Wednesday, so it is open mic night at Naughty Nancy's. Open mic night. So bring your ukulele, your guitar, your violin, your wonderful voice, uh, any other musical instruments you have, and get up to the mic and show us what you got. Okay, give her a call at 446-3717. That's 446-3717. That is a quarter of a mile north of Drew Street, right on the trail, right behind the studio. It's a quarter of a mile north of Drew Street, right on the trail at 700 Eldridge Street. And see, oh, yes, yeah, testing tonight because that's what's going on every Wednesday at Sunshine Drag Strip. And don't forget Quaker Steak and Lube on Thursday starting at 5 o'clock. Cool car show. All right. So let's see what else we got. Oh, yeah, I just want to tell you guys what I did today. I want to say hello to my friends over there at Reeves Import Motor Cars. They were kind enough to loan me a brand new 2011 Porsche Panamera. Uh, 4S or S4, and um, that's uh, that's got a hefty price tag. It's a hundred four thousand dollar, hundred five thousand dollar car, but an amazing car. I took that car out on the interstate for a while and around town, and uh, it's it's truly a Porsche. So Porsche has really got a stunning, amazing 
four-door sedan out there. So if you really like a sporty car, you don't want that. You know, Mercedes is a good car. BMW is a good car. And, of course, you know, they got the other guys, the Lexuses, which are basically a Toyota, and the Infinities, which are basically a Nissan. Okay, but true pedigree, nothing equals a Porsche. Okay, and uh, so the Porsche Panamera, the one I had today was a 400-horsepower V8 car. And I, I drove, the, I test drove this car for a reason, and it pertains to our special guests for the evening, okay? And uh, so, so we'll get into this car a little bit later. Um, it was a PDK transmission, automatic 7-speed, okay? An amazing transmission, double-clutch, automatic. You can't even tell the car shifts. Uh, acceleration was amazing. It was a 5-second car, it was 60 or better. Um, stability, yes, I was breaking the speed limit. I was doing, uh, I think at one point, a little over 115 maybe. In between traffic, so I was kind of being—I was cautious, but I was careful. But I was still testing the car because that's what I do. I test cars from time to time, and uh, so that car's an amazing car. I can't say enough about it. Um, it the, the best part about the car is when you're sitting in there. I mean, the cockpit area really is ergonomically designed. The controls are all right there. It's act, if for all you guys that are aviators and pilots, uh, you can definitely relate to this uh, interior. It's very, very, very functional. It's right there. Everything's at your fingertips. And it's uh, done very well. And then when you look out over the hood, it's kind of cool. Um, there's a quote that our guest will tell us a little bit later. I'll say the quote for him. And it comes from another very famous automobile guy. And uh, But the neat thing about this car is you're sitting there and you're looking over the hood and you can see the fenders. You can see the little bubble in the hood, the little bulge in the hood. And the car's got contour. So it's not flat and just runs to the end and drops off. This car has got style. It's an amazing car. So anyway, and then, of course, they loaned me a Volkswagen CC, which I am driving right at the moment. I have a Volks- 2011 Volkswagen CC. So if you want something in the $30,000 price range, a really, really nice car uh, to compete with anything that the, uh, the other overseas market people have on the planet, um, the Volkswagen CC is an amazing car. It's plenty peppy. The one I have is a four-cylinder turbo car. It's a white car with a black interior. It's a sport package, par- uh, sport package option car, so... Um, I guess they call it the R line. So, like you know, BMW has M series for their M class. You know, their hot rod department basically. Mercedes has AMG. Porsche's Porsche. Nothing's more pedigree than a Porsche. And I know I'm partial, but I am. But at any rate, and then Volkswagen now has the R line. So if you get an R line Volkswagen, it's a sport package car with the nice seats, the little stiffer suspension on it, great handling car. Um, very, very nicely done. And uh, for the price range in the 30s, low thirty thousand dollar price range, that's a great car. Um, you can drive this thing from here to, uh, you know, you can drive it around the globe. Anyway, let's see, uh, what else do I want to cover here tonight? Uh, man, I, I'm really excited about a guest. So, uh, let's go, to, let's fire up the, uh, music box real quick. Let's go through this next little song real quick and let's get our special guest on for the evening. Thank you. 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and if you need to get a hold of us, email us here at golfstreamradio at gmail.com. A few minutes earlier, I was talking about uh, Porsches and Volkswagens. I want to say a special thanks to our friends over at Reeves Import Motor Cars in Tampa. If you need a Volkswagen, if you need a Porsche, if you need an Audi, if you need a BMW, or any other German car, call our friends over at Reeves Import Motor Cars. 813-933-2811. That's 813-933-2811. And we have our special guest on the line. Let me tell you about this gentleman. This guy's been around for a long time. This guy's no stranger to cars, no stranger to heavy equipment, no stranger to the corporate world. But boy, has this guy done a fine job with one of the most famous recognized marks on the planet. And that would be Porsche. Without further ado, I would like to welcome a friend of mine who I had the honor and pleasure of meeting back in 1981 at, in Germany, at the Porsche factory, Peter Schutz. Welcome to the radio show. Good evening, Bob. How you doing? Well, I'm doing just great. That's good. Hey, uh, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I, got, I got so many questions. I know we talked about this. Uh, so let's get right into it. And one of the first things I want to do is uh, you just recently completed writing a book called The Driving Force. And uh, it's Extraordinary Results with Ordinary People. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book real quick? Why, sure. That book is kind of a summary of my history uh, as a manager. And uh, I consider myself a pretty ordinary person. Matter of fact, my favorite philosopher is Yogi Berra. And Yogi once said, you can observe a lot if you just watch. And what I have learned how to do over the years is to watch what's going on around me and decide what kind of things seem to work and what don't. And uh, the title of the book says uh, how to get extraordinary results with ordinary people, because that's what most of us really are. Uh, and if we are going to be blessed with a superstar or two, uh, we have to provide an environment in which those people believe they can succeed. Uh, and the two things I have found that are indispensable for that is, number one, you must be able to keep score. There is nothing more discouraging for a superstar than to try to, for them to do something and nobody even knows the difference. And number two, they must have a supporting cast of ordinary people who will put all of their energies into supporting the programs that the superstars are able to implement. And uh, that's what the book is all about. It's just a history of my life with Caterpillar, where I was an engineer for 18 years, and then Cummins Engine Company, where I served as vice president of sales and service for 11 years. And then the 1980s, which were my years at Porsche, where I finally had an opportunity to be a chief executive and to put all of the things that I had learned to work. Now, if somebody wants to acquire this book, how would they go about getting this book? Well, one of the things you can do is you can uh, write to me, and uh, I'll leave it to you to communicate the address. Okay. And uh, if you will write to me and send me 25 bucks, I will personalize the book and dedicate it to you and sign it and get it back to you. Okay. We'll give that information out later. Or if anybody wants to email us here at gmail.com or golfstreamradio at gmail.com, we will get you all the information you need to obtain this book from this extraordinary person, Peter Schutz. Peter, while I got you on the phone... And one of the things we want to talk about is we want to talk about your days at Porsche because that's when you really got into the car business and that's when you really had an opportunity to kind of uh, express yourself and just take all that stuff, that knowledge and that expertise you got and apply it to a company that really needed your service back then. So tell us how it is that you came about or did it came about that you wound up at Porsche uh, in Germany. Now we're talking Porsche AG, Porsche Aktiengesellschaft, right? It's the manufacturer of Porsche car in Stuttgart, right. Germany, yes. Well, of course, uh, once upon a long time ago, in 1930, I was born in Germany, in Berlin. And uh, my father was a Jewish doctor, which resulted in us having to leave the country in the heat of the night in 1939, and uh, finally ended up in the United States. 
Uh, so I was educated here. I became a mechanical engineer and ended up spending 18 years with Caterpillar designing engines and building them and uh, developing them. And then uh, 11 years with Cummins Engine Company as vice president of sales and service for truck engines. Uh, I uh, ended up going back to Germany in 1978 and uh, was put in charge of a German diesel engine company called Deutz, which was my first introduction into a global business. Uh, that's really where Professor Porsche contacted me one day and asked if I would be interested in uh, taking over his company, uh, actually the family's company, the Porsche and Piège families. Well, uh, I had never been in the car business, but I figured if the guy wants to talk, well, I'll talk. So I found myself in Stuttgart and uh, with the Porsche and Piège family members, who owned uh, the company, and uh, didn't take very long to find out that I had no idea what I was talking about. And so I decided to, I stood up and I said, you know, I think we're all wasting time here. Uh, I've never been in the car business, although I, I'm a car enthusiast, uh, and I think you better look somewhere else. And uh, Professor Porsche got up and he said, hell Schutz." You don't seem to understand anything. You see, in this company, we have people who really know how to design automobiles. We have people who know how to build them, people who know how to sell them and know how to service them. And this whole supply infrastructure you say you're not familiar with, it doesn't matter. We have people who know how to do all of that. Our problem is we're not earning any money. And when we take a good look at that, it occurs to us that our people are simply not working together. Engineering seems to fight with manufacturing. Everybody fights with the finance department. And then personnel and the legal department get involved. If we could find somebody that could get all of these people on the same page, we're pretty sure that good things would begin to happen. Well, I started to respond, uh, now that you put it that way, and Professor Porsche interrupted me, he says, Herr Schutz, please, we don't want to waste our time with your history. We've studied it. We think we understand it. I tell you what, don't call us, we'll call you. And that was my introduction to the Porsche family and the ownership. Wow. Now, here in your book, there's a quote in the introduction that says, uh, that you said to uh, uh, Dr. Ferry Porsche at one point, if you could keep all the products, facility, and tooling in which Porsche has ever invested, but you had to replace all the people at Porsche, or if you keep all the people at Porsche, if you were to keep all the people at Porsche, but you had to replace the tooling and the products in the facility, which one would you choose? And Dr. Ferry's response was? Right after World War II, that's exactly where we were. The bombing had destroyed all of our plants, equipment, and all that stuff, and all we had left were some of our people. And we managed to rebuild the company on that basis. If I would not have had my people anymore, I really don't know if I could ever have rebuilt the company. So basically then what you did is you came in there and you just grouped everybody together, laid out some plans, and said, and basically turned them loose. Is that essentially what you did? I mean, at one point, I was reading in the, in the first chapter, is you just you said you had an excellent engineer, you had excellent resources, you had uh, just an unbelievable team, but they just they lacked direction. And that's basically what you did. Is when you came into Porsche, you gave them direction. You know, I can tell you a little story uh, of how I see the world and how I see these things. You know, if you can imagine a construction site where three men are doing exactly the same thing, and a passerby asks the first one, what are you doing here? And the answer is, I am busting rocks. Ask the second man the same question, and this time the answer was, I am earning my living. 
in any organization that I have been aware of, if people believe they are busting rocks to earn their living, then their personal objective will become, how can I bust fewer rocks for more money? And what are the top managers trying to get them to do? They want them to bust more rocks for less money. Yeah. There's no way that that can work. He asked the third man who was doing exactly the same thing, and this time the answer was, I am helping my colleagues build a temple for our customers. If people are working together to improve the life of their customers, they will outperform the rock busters any day of the week. So the way I had learned to approach the situation that was handed to me at Porsche is I had to find the temple so that I could get these people to understand that. And when I asked Professor Porsche, where do you think I should start? I mean, you hired me in here. I really don't know what's going on. His answer was, go and watch a sports car race. So in March of 1981, I went and saw my first ever sports car race, which happened to be in Sebring, Florida. And I saw a vehicle called a Porsche 935. I had never seen anything quite like it. Rear tires seemed to be about a foot and a half wide, two turbochargers hanging on an air-cooled rear-mounted engine, and when that beast was out on the track at full song and they shifted gears, the flames would shoot out of each exhaust stack two or three feet. 750 horsepower, 820 kilos. This was a beast of an automobile. One of them won that race, and happened to be Al Horbert was the driver. And I went back to Germany higher than a kite. I couldn't believe what I just experienced. And that's what it occurred to me. This was the temple. And if I can get the company focused on that, I think all of this infighting would disappear. If I could get people together and go and win a race like the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So that was really what I picked as the instrument with which to reunite all the people in this company. Now, when uh, so when you uh, when you first got involved in that, and you went to the race and you came back and you saw the car. What was one of the things that you said? And in and, and the book here, it talks about it. Is that you said to the uh, guys at engineering and and Weissach and stuff was, well, what do we have that we can compete that's competitive? Uh, that we can race. And I think the response was, is when we had the 924 Carrera GT at the time, which was basically a modified 924. And, uh, right. and, they, and the response of those guys was, was, well, the car will be competitive. It could win in its class. But that wasn't good enough for you. You said, listen, we're not here. If we're going to go to Le Mans, we're going to go there with the objective to win the race. We're not going to well, go let me, there. Let me quote you exactly okay. what I said. Okay, go ahead. I'll never forget it. I said, as long as I am in charge of this organization, we will never go to any race without the objective of winning. Okay. You see, that w- turned out to be an incredible statement. I mean, I, I, I'm, I can't tell you I had this all planned. You know, it, it just kind of came together because I, hadn't, I didn't tell them to do anything. What I really did was explain what the culture at Porsche was going to be from here on. And the culture, to me, is defined by things you will never do under any circumstances. I mean, unlike you, Bob, for example, I can't imagine you would ever advocate something that you know going in has no chance of working, trying to get people to, you know, doing a con job. Exactly. Never. Not in a million years. You don't do that. No, that's wrong. And so I have learned that culture is defined by what you never do. So then I told them, since that is going to be the way we work, I am going to adjourn this meeting right now, 
and you come back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning and explain how you have rethought this, this Lamar race, which was 62 days ahead of us at the time. Well, the next day, the word was all over the factory. At that time, that was about 5,000 people. And everybody was talking about the fact that we're through being doormats. We are not going to go racing in a, with a car that we know can't win. And uh, so they came back that day, and the meeting ended about twice as big. It must have had 150 people in there. And uh, one of the engineers explained that they had a car in the museum called a Porsche 936 that had won that race a few years before but was now hopelessly obsolete. But, he said, we have developed an engine with which we were hoping to go racing in America at Indianapolis. But that program got canceled because the company went broke and we were told that we couldn't afford it. But we saved all the pieces. Now, we're going to have to change those engines over from methanol to gasoline. Uh, don't worry. Well, I thought, worry? Why would they think I'm going to worry? I didn't even know what they were talking about. <laughs> But when I heard them say to me, don't worry, it signaled to me that I had become a member of the family. And the reason that happened is because they liked this way of working. They had been so used to being told in all kinds of detail, here is what you're going to do, here is why you're going to do it, this is when you're going to do it, and here is your budget. And if you blow it, you better start looking for another job. And all of a sudden, somebody told him, no, we're not going racing with a car that can't win. Now, you figure it out and come back and tell me what you want to do. Now, you notice, Bob, they could have come back and said, well, let's just forget about it, because we don't have enough time and we don't have enough money, so let's just forget about the whole thing. But they didn't do that. They came back with a plan, and all I remembered saying in that meeting was, let's go racing. You know, the way all of that stuff came together it was almost impossible for me to believe, because everybody was pitching in. I mean, after their workday, the people in the production department and the cafeteria and the legal department and the finance department, they would jump in their cars and head out to Weissach, about six kilometers outside of Stuttgart, and they would show up there after work looking for some way in which they could help. Uh, the way the company came together around that project uh, was just like magic. And, uh, of course, it is something that I had experienced before, uh, both at Caterpillar and at uh, Cummins. But uh, the way these people came together around that objective, which, of course, was their temple, uh, was incredible. Uh, the next thing that happened is I started getting phone calls. Uh, the first one I remember was from Jackie X. And Jackie X called me in my office, and he said, Mr. Schutz, you don't know me. I am a retired race car driver. Yeah, right. Uh, probably the most outstanding long-distance sports car driver of his generation. If the rumors I am hearing are true, he went on to say, I would like to once again drive a Porsche at Le Mans. Well, he never asked me what I was prepared to pay. It obviously was not about money. Of course, you realize if you win the Indy 500 or you win Le Mans, uh, you don't have to worry about money. I mean, that at that point, you're a made man. Uh -huh. I but I really wondered, how in the heck did, did he come to call me? Because I knew if I had called him and asked him to come and race, the best thing I could have expected him to say would be, let me think about it. And then he'd have done a little research. I 
had to go through quite a bit of effort to find out who in the world got Jackie X to call me. And I found out it was a guy by the name of Mr. Metzger, who was one of our engine designers. And when Heinz Metzger was young and beautiful, he was on Jackie X's pit crew when Jackie was driving Formula One. And all these mechanics, all these ordinary people got a hold of Heinz Metzger and said, Heinz, why don't you call your old buddy Jackie X? If we can get him to drive this car, we really have a chance to win this thing. And that's how that came about. And shortly thereafter, I got similar calls from Derek Bell, Jochen Moss, L. Holbert, Hurley Haywood, Vern Schupin, and, you know, Hurley, who you had on your program recently. Right. And uh, that's how you attract the superstars. When the superstars get a smell of somebody who is really building something worthwhile, and if they know they can count on a supporting cast that is going to support them, not make dumb mistakes, and be in this thing with heart and soul, the superstars will come. And that's how we went to Le Mans in 1981 and won that race. That's an amazing. Now I got to tell you. Okay. All my union stewards came to that race. I put them on a bus and I said, "I want you to come because it was you and your people who put these cars together." And I invited all the family. For the first time in 20 years, Professor Porsche came to that race. Wow. First time in 20 years? First time in 20 years he had gone there. And uh, Ferdinand Piesch was there, and uh, a lot of the other Porsche and Piesch youngsters, they were youngsters at the time. Today Uh they're just like me, old guys. But uh, it was an incredible event. Uh, And let me just tell you one very personal thing, if I may. Sure. You know, my family left Germany. My father was a Jewish doctor, and we were driven out of the country by the Gestapo with our lives in danger on March 28, 1939. Forty years later, I'm back in Germany, and I am working for the most German of all German companies, uh, and, you know, and Professor Porsche. I just want you to imagine... 450,000 spectators at that race. And I got to stand on the winner's podium with Professor Porsche on my right and Jackie X on my left, the German flag flying overhead, and the band is playing Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. And all I could think about, I wish my father could have lived to see this. Wow. That's truly, you know, let bygones be bygones. Move on. It's history. Let's get on with it. We have a job. We have an objective to do, and let's do it, and let's band together and move forwards. Fair statement? That's absolutely right. All right. Now, one of the things you talked about, too, earlier is that you mentioned that Porsche was one of the few manufacturers, the few, actually the only company that builds and sells race cars. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, you see, the company, you remember, I told you, was broke. Right. So I was looking for any possible means to earn some money. And so uh, after that 81 race, uh, all the racing rules were changed, and the 936 was never allowed to race again. In three months, that gang out at Weissach, under the direction of Helmut Bott, who was our chief engineer, in three months, they designed a completely new race car called a 986. The only part of that car that was carried over from that wonderful 936 was the guts of that old Indianapolis engine. We went to the 82 race with three never-before-raced cars called 986s. Were they 956s? They were 986. Oh, 986? Okay. That was a precursor of the 962. Okay. The 962 was a U.S. version, which had a little longer wheelbase. Right. That was the requirement. And we went to that race, and uh, 
Our cars were numbered one, two, three, and that's how they finished that race. One, two, three. After 24 hours. And uh, we never looked back from there. After that race, the press got me in a corner, and they said, all right, Schutz, how do you explain that? Three brand-new, never-before-raced cars and total domination. And my answer to them was, you may be seeing this wrong. It is true the cars are new, but the people aren't. These are the same people that won this race last year. Because, as I said before, cars don't win races. People do. And your guest from a few days ago, Hurley Haywood, drove the number three car in that race. Wow, it's amazing. So he was a part of that. Uh, Tell us a little bit about now... And and then so Porsche basically builds race cars to sell to the public. In other words, these are full-blown, race-ready race cars that are developed at Weissach, pretty much, right? And then... Yes. And now works... And the, nine, the 986 was the first one. Right. Because, you see, after that race, uh, we made the decision, Helmut Dott and I, that we were going to build identical cars and sell them to anybody who wanted to buy them and go racing. Well, now that's a little overstated. We're not going to sell them to somebody that doesn't know how to drive, you know. Right. So so we sold them to people who put together teams that we felt were professional. But the cars were identical. And you can imagine I had quite a bit of resistance to that because my people said, well, now, gee, You mean we're going to give other people exactly the same car we're driving? And I said, that's it, folks, because cars don't win races. People do. Teamwork. And if you expect to keep winning, you better just implement every detail a little bit better than anybody else in the world. Tell us a little bit about Weissach and what exactly Weissach is. Weissach's the engineering arm of Porsche, correct? Well, actually, you see, before Porsche built an automobile to sell in the 1930s, Porsche was an engineering company. And they did all the engineering under Adolf Hitler for the so-called people's car, the Volkswagen. And until Volkswagen stopped building the Beetle, and you remember they started building a car called a Golf. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, Volkswagen started doing their own engineering, and they stopped hiring Porsche to do all their engineering. That actually is the reason that the company was broke when they hired me, because the engineering business is indispensable for a company like Porsche. For the few cars, and I think... Porsche is now finally approaching 100,000 cars a year, which is nothing in the world market. And no way could Porsche afford the level of engineering that is in those cars if engineering wasn't a big business on its own. And the cars they design and actually use for Porsche are really just a byproduct of all the engineering they do for a lot of other companies around the world. Uh, you were telling me that one of the companies that they did work, that you guys did work for, and a lot of our listeners will probably appreciate this, was General Motors. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I can't tell you about all the details. Well, just some of the stuff, highlights. But, but you know, we worked on engines. We designed some of their first disc brakes and their first anti-lock brakes. And we really made a business out of doing all the environmental stuff, you know, the crash testing and the Uh emissions testing. And um, we did that for a lot of companies in the world. Okay, and then you also were working on the uh, the Airbus project too. You did uh, some cockpit development and engineering yeah, for them. Right? That was that was an interesting project. You see, I I have been a pilot most of my career. Uh, not anymore today because I'm diabetic, so I no longer am allowed to fly. But uh, so when I got to Porsche and I was looking for engineering work, and I got wind of the fact 
that there was a new consortium between Germany, Italy, and France, based in Toulouse, France, that was going to build an airliner called the A300. So I grabbed some of my best engineers, and we went to Toulouse, and it turns out the chief engineer at Airbus at that time was an ex-Lufthansa captain. So we made sweet music right off the bat because we were both pilots. And I proposed to them that they might think about, for the first time, build a cockpit for an airliner that was not in a further development or an evolution of a World War II heavy bomber. And what I had in mind was building what is called a glass cockpit, which had already been developed by the U.S. Air Force for fighter planes, but it consisted of oscillographs instead of all these little gauges. And you may remember some of the early jet airliners had three people in the cockpit, a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer. And the flight engineer sat sideways and had wall-to-ceiling gauges that track the performance of the engines. Well, we had a proposal to simplify all that, and we got the contract. Went back to Weissach and built a mock-up of the A300 cockpit with uh, two oscilloscopes in front of the pilot, two in front of the co-pilot, but we didn't know where to put all the switches and all the supporting hardware. So what we did is we invited... Uh, captains from Lufthansa, Alitalia, and Air France to come to Weissach and have them tell us where to put all the gadgets and all the switches, which is very typical for me because, as you and I have discussed before, it's really all about the customers, and as far as I'm concerned, the airline captains were going to be the customers, not the people who buy airplanes. So we invited them to come to Weissach, and then I pulled a little trick on them. I got seats out of a Porsche sports car and put them in the mock-up of that cockpit. Well, when those airline captains, you know, the experienced old-timers, came to give us advice on how to lay out the instrument panel, and they sat down in that chair... It was all over. They said, oh, my God, what is this? They said, do you have any idea what we sit on for 10 hours flying across the Atlantic? We're so sore by the time we get there that we can hardly stand up. From that moment on, we had them in our pocket. And they helped us lay that cockpit out, which was extremely successful. As a matter of fact, as part of that whole thing, we even managed to sell a fly-by-wire system for the first time in an airliner. And the Boeing didn't have a fly-by-wire until the 777. Wow. Hey, Peter, I just got a uh, couple-minute warning. So yeah. uh, um, I'll, tell, I'll mention this beforehand. Since we didn't get a chance to cover all the stuff, would you, you'd be willing to come back on the show again and talk some more, wouldn't you? It would be a pleasure. Okay, because we, what I want to get into, too, is is uh, a little bit more about the 9-11 and how you were able to save the 9-11 for, for all of us 9-11 Porsche enthusiasts, which was really you know the, the mainstay, the most recognizable car on the planet. And that's the, that's, that's the heart and soul of Porsche is the 9-11 car, you know, the rear engine 9-11 that we're all so, uh, so uh, familiar with. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll go through the details with you, but I can tell you the bottom line is... I had never even sat in a 911 when I got the Porsche job. No kidding. On the back yeah, of the I mean I was a dyed in the wool Chevrolet enthusiast. Oh my gosh, a Chevrolet enthusiast. All more Chevys. But uh, when I got there, uh, I didn't save the 911, our customers did. Because of the demand, right? Because well, we all I mean uh, uh, and actually that was the reason that the whole company was so demoralized because they couldn't understand abandoning the 9-11. And we'll talk about that another time, you okay. know, what the reasons were and, and uh, how we got about that. But uh, that's got to be one of the most successful vehicles or products ever built. But it was the customers that saved it, not me. 
Well, anyway, that's definitely well, definitely that's a definitely uh, 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 a, a, a topic for conversation. But anyway, Peter, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, take care of yourself. I will definitely be in touch with you. Um, I do get to Sarasota every once in a while, so I'm not that too not that far away from you. Uh, I'll come visit you in Naples. And I want to say thanks to all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And be sure to tune in to us next week. Don't forget, it's open mic night at Naughty Nancy's. And uh, that's 446-3717. Everybody stay safe. In the meantime, tune in next week at our new time, 8 o'clock on Wednesdays, on the Tan Talk Radio Network here on AM 1340. And uh, I guess that's about it, right, Lee? All right. 